Welcome to the second lecture for BIOS E1A. For those of you who were not here the first evening, uh, please raise your hand. Uh, we have some props for the course this semester, uh, index cards uh, that we're going to be handing out to you. So keep them up as I go through some initial uh, announcements for this evening. Uh, also, if you have them with you from last time, uh, that is the neon pink, yellow, and green index cards so that I can really see where you are, uh, take them out. We'll be using them throughout the lecture this evening. So just a couple of general announcements. Uh, each instructor of the course will have a floating office hour. My floating office hour this week will be on Thursday from 5 to 6 p.m in Science Center 412. So I just had my first scheduled office hour today before our lecture uh, from 6 to 7. This next one will also be in the Science Center 412. And each week I'll let you guys know uh, when my floating hour will be. I try to make this based on what your interest is, when you can meet. Um, so that may change from, from week to week. And I know the uh, other instructors of the course will be doing the same as well. Another general announcement, um, this has to do with your discussion section and your lab section, which everyone should be registered for, yes? Pin cards, we all registered for both the discussion section and the lab section. If your card not going up right now, make sure you are registered. You should have received, now hold those up high again so I can see them. Keep them up if you received an email from your discussion section TF. If you already received an email, awesome. So everyone looked at that email. It's a welcome email from your discussion section TF uh, to just give you a highlight or a brief introduction uh, as to what will be covered in the discussion section uh, this semester. Um, has anyone received an email from their lab TF yet regarding meeting? Cool. I mean, maybe a couple of you have already. If you haven't already received one from your lab TF, that's cool. You'll receive one from them in the next few days. All right? We still don't have our first lab until Monday, so we wanted to prioritize the discussion sections to get those all up and running for you and then make the introductions so that you know exactly what's going on and then you can make the most out of the discussion section uh, this semester. For those of you who are new uh, this evening, you have one lecture to catch up on, all right? So definitely do some backtracking. Um, perhaps talk to some other students in the course. Uh, make sure if you haven't already done this, go through the syllabus. Everything's spelled out for you fairly clearly. Um, and if you have any questions, raise them on the discussion forum. I know that I've been receiving emails from people, as have the other instructors, and then of course our head TF, Casey. Um, but please put these on the discussion forum so we can all see those questions. Chances are you have the exact same question as a dozen or so of your classmates. Um, so we try to increase the efficiency of the course by doing this. That way I can spend more time going over content-related questions that you'll have, I'm sure, throughout the semester. So before I go into some stuff, new material that is, does anyone have a general question about where we are right now in the course in terms of expectations, um, whether it has to do with the discussion section, the lab section? 
I think our head TF Casey will be here a little later. Perhaps she'll take any questions that you guys may have. Um, no? All right, go ahead. That is correct. So the way those work, I broke the first set up into two pieces because I wanted to make sure I at least got out a couple to you guys sooner than later. Um, so hopefully you've been working on them. Those problem sets, 1A and 1B, will be covered during the first discussion section. And you'll see, if you go into the course website, it has a schedule for all the discussion sections, one through nine, and what topics will be covered for any of those given weeks. So for discussion section number one, that corresponds with problem set one. For discussion section two, will correspond with problem set two. So when you're looking through your notes and you're trying to determine, okay, who taught me this material? Because I'm going to ask them a question. You'll know exactly where to go. All right. As we move further down the line, um, even though I may not be teaching lecture, you can definitely still ask me questions about the material I covered. All right. That's the whole idea is that up until the first exam, and as well the final, your instructors, your TFs, we're here to answer the questions you have about content. Any other questions, general ones? Go ahead. Absolutely, yeah, they will be. And I, and I think the way we'll do this is after they've been covered in a discussion section, we'll put them up there. And uh, make sure you go through the problems. Uh, perhaps if you're not sure, Come up with multiple solutions so that when you read through those answers, okay, you can see exactly what the solution is. Um, don't just wait till the answers come up and then read them. Those problem sets are designed to exercise your ability to apply the concepts learned in class to real situations, all right, to things that relate more to how the human body functions. So definitely exhaust all attempts at those problems before you read those or before you look at those uh, answers. And definitely come prepared to discussion section. Your discussion section TFs have been working very hard on putting together material to cover in the section. Make use of that time. If you show up and you just looked at the problems and you haven't worked on them and you're the only one with your hand up asking all these questions that don't necessarily pertain to the material, it's not going to make for a very efficient experience for everyone else. So definitely put the time and effort in to those problems before you come to section. You'll get more out of the experience, your classmates will, and most certainly your TFs who want to help you will get more out of that experience. Go ahead. For, for, the, for the exams, um, there may be true-false. There may be true-false, and I think uh, after discussing this with, uh, with all the instructors, we're looking at something 50-50, half problems, half multiple choice type questions. Whether those multiple choice type questions are set up in a true-false fashion or fill-in type or just sheer true-false or, sorry, sheer multiple choice rather, that's something that as we build the exams we'll, we'll decide. But it won't be all true-false. I wouldn't do that. Um, it'll definitely be a pretty good diversity of question types. But we're leaning towards half problem sets or half problem type questions, half um, all the other possibilities that I just mentioned. I think we talked briefly about that. I think that that sounds uh, pretty comfortable. Um, not that we give you guys all problems or all multiple choice type questions. Um, pin cards, I mean, how many people here are interested in pre-med or they're pursuing 
you know, they're working on this post-bac pre-med program. I mean, many of you are. You know, some where higher than three-quarters of the class may be working on that. On the MCAT 2015s, which are revised from previous years, there are multiple choice questions. So we want to make sure that we test you accordingly. This isn't a course that prepares you for the MCAT specifically, but this is part of the foundation that will allow you to or provide you with what you need to achieve success on the MCAT. So keep that in mind. Okay, so just a brief overview of this evening's uh, material that we're going to cover. Uh, we're going to start out with a brief overview of molecules of life. Uh, we're going to specifically concentrate on proteins. All right. Now, there's many different types of molecules that make up living organisms, and uh, today is the first of two lectures on the molecules of life. And what's very interesting about proteins is they don't exhibit, or they don't exist perhaps in one form. So we're going to go over the different conformational uh, forms of proteins, and we're also going to really carefully examine what influences these shapes, what influences these structures, what allow the amino acids to interact in a way that they will generate a protein that can transport oxygen through our blood if we're talking about something like hemoglobin. So how exactly does that behave? The second part of the class after our break will go over enzymes, and these are types of proteins. So enzymes play a very big role in catalyzing chemical reactions. We finished up class uh, on Wednesday with chemical reactions. We're going to now see exactly how enzymes play a role in those um, particular chemical reactions. Does anyone know what the first protein uh, structure uh, ever discovered is? This was in the 50s, the first protein structure ever solved. It was after the discovery of DNA, by the way. The structure of it is of DNA, by the way. OK, so you'll find out tonight. That's OK. Right? So we'll find out exactly what that is. I like to highlight things if I'm uh, going over my slides while I'm waiting out in the hallway. By the way, I think most of you guys are waiting out in the hallway for the chemistry, or that was uh, biochem, rather, to finish up. Was that biochem before us this evening? Anyway, the class before us, I think it was biochem. Please make sure on Wednesdays, um, oh, Mondays, rather. Mondays, Wednesdays, we don't have to worry about that. On Mondays, you guys just wait outside. Um, 7.35, that's when I'll come in, and, uh, and we'll get set up. Um, but just please respect the class that's, uh, that's finishing up. Um, but as I was waiting out in the hallway for the class to, to leave, um, I noticed a little typo in my slide. I'll try to highlight these. I'll try to identify them. They'll for sure be in the complete version of the file that I typically upload after the class. But while you're here in class, you can make this edit now. So, uh, you know, grammar. Spelling, I can't guarantee it'll be 100%, but there it is. It's fixed for you, and it'll be fixed in the actual complete set. So there it is. There's the work that was published in 58 uh, by Kendrew, who ultimately did uh, receive acknowledgment as part of the Nobel Prize in Chemistry uh, in 62, I believe, four years later together with another individual, Perutz. And I'll talk about Perutz's work briefly. But what you're looking at up on the top is some really old work. However, it was sort of a very important experiment, and that is how to elucidate the structure of a protein. So for this particular protein that they were trying to identify the structure of, it was myoglobin. 
they knew that it was a protein that had the ability to transport oxygen and it had the ability to store oxygen in muscle. So they actually went to sperm whale to find this protein. Sperm whale and any other organism perhaps in the ocean that needs to dive really deep needs to be able to store oxygen for an extended period of time. So what great model to study that is the sperm whale to elucidate the structure. So the structure analysis that was performed, you can see in the upper left-hand corner of the slide, all right? It almost looks like the map of uh, Massachusetts, perhaps. Perhaps this looks like the Cape. Um, perhaps this is a topographical map of the elevation throughout the state. It's not. At the time, this was the technology that was used to understand how these atoms and how the bond lengths differed within the structure of the protein itself. But they were able to highlight from this the different portions of the, of the protein myoglobin. And in addition to that, they were able to highlight the heme group, which is a very important portion of the myoglobin protein. Does anyone know what the heme group does? What does it help hold on to? Yeah, absolutely. So this molecule, this protein, ultimately that is the role of it. And from this, they were able to generate some structures for publication on the myoglobin. Now you may look at this and say, okay, well it doesn't quite look like this. This is more current day methods of looking at proteins, of analyzing proteins, of ribbon structure. But what's really cool here is that the myoglobin, the tertiary structure that is, and we'll learn about what that means in a minute, looks very similar to the hemoglobin. Now I know there's a practice problem on this, and perhaps you should really pay attention so that you can begin to understand what the solution may be to this practice problem. Now even though, the, even though these both look similar in the tertiary form, this is not the active form for hemoglobin. In other words, hemoglobin will form bonds with more subunits to form what we call a quaternary structure in order for it to be active. In order for it to transport oxygen where in our body? In the blood, to all parts of our body, you got it. So in this case, you have heme groups as well, but this structure is made up of four different subunits, two alphas and two betas. So this hopefully should excite you into, okay, well, why are we studying proteins? Can we really break them apart? Can we ultimately look at these proteins to come up with new drug targets, to treat illnesses, to treat diseases? This is a whole field of structural biology and systems biology, if we look at the metabolic pathways of, of organisms. So I did put the uh, reference for the study, should you want to look at it. The language is actually very readable. Um, Check it out if you're interested and if you want to look a little bit deeper into it. Um, by the way, uh, this individual was working on hemoglobin at the time. I think it's pretty cool that both of them were, were awarded the uh, Nobel Prize for these discoveries. But how do we study proteins today and how can we gain an appreciation for proteins? Well, we really have to look at the functional groups. All right, we have to look at the parts of the amino acids that make up a protein that ultimately generate bonds. So here's a set of functional groups that we'll be talking about and we'll be looking at very carefully and their properties. So we already introduced the chemical properties in the first lecture. Now we're assigning or looking at these different functional groups and which have a polar property, which is capable of forming these bonds with water even. All right? What can interact with water? via hydrogen bonds. Well, we need to know what the properties are of these functional groups. So these are just pulled directly from your textbook, highlighting all the key features 
um, to the functional groups. Now, not all functional groups uh, behave the same way. We're going to talk quite a bit about self-hydrogen groups, which ultimately help hold together those tertiary and ultimately, in some cases, but less often, quaternary structure of proteins. Covalent bonds, very strong bonds that form between two cysteine amino acids. So just to note something, I think in your slide set you have keto and then something about very important. Just make sure you guys corrected the language. I made a, a change to this when I was going over the slides. And that's the highlight to bring this to your attention. So when we look at uh, chemical structures, uh, we have to first take a look at how they're arranged. So this is written um, in a certain fashion. This is not necessarily written with a chemical formula. In this case, we're looking at the structural arrangement of the atoms. Um, in this case, you have a linear structure versus a branch structure. All right, so there's different structural arrangements uh, of the atoms that make up this particular compound. Um, and then for the cis and the trans, this is something that uh, Pinkards, did we learn this in chemistry? Cis and trans? Okay, great. So cis, in this case, they're on the same side of the molecule or the compound, rather. Trans are on opposite sides. All right, I edited that out, so hopefully you saw that in your slide. And then for the optical, where we have the mirror image, in order for this to work, you need to have some asymmetry within what you're looking at. So in this case, where you have uh, CH4 or methane, you can see in this case, I mean, well, let's just call it that for now, um, you can see how this molecule will have uh, this um, scratch that. CH4 is a very bad example. We're looking for something that has uh, asymmetry to it. So we can see this sort of uh, mirror image. And uh, I'll dive in deeper to this when we look at the amino acids. But if we were looking at this molecule in a mirror, we would see that it has a reflection. And it would have the opposite effect. Go ahead. Say that again? Chirality of a molecule, yes. I mean, that, that does have to do with it. I won't talk too much about that here. I know that that's used more in, in chemistry. Um, but I won't move into that too much. So what are the four types of molecules that make up or that are characteristic to all living things? What can we think of? We have carbohydrates. I've been talking a lot about proteins, lipids, and nucleic acids. So those are the four big ones that we'll be talking about. Of those four, of those four, which one's not a polymer? Lipids. So we're going to learn, OK, polymers are made up of monomers. Lipids are not polymers. So we're going to try to really uh, dive today deep into proteins, but the next time talk more about the carbohydrates and the lipids. And then Jess will be covering the nucleic acids. What are the monomers that make up these? We're getting ahead a little bit. What make up the proteins? Amino acids, the carbs, or the carbohydrates. Sugars, right? Sugars. The nucleic acids. What's that? Say that again. Nucleotides make up the nucleic acids. So these are the macromolecules that we'll be talking about this semester. And they're monomeric units. These aren't. And you will see when we talk about proteins, especially when we talk about quaternary structures, 
We'll mention them as subunits that make up a quaternary structure. All right? Monomers are more of these building blocks that come together to form the polymers. The subunits, those terms are used more often for like subatomic particles, which make up atoms, or the subunits for a protein, the quaternary form of it. So we have for proteins, amino acids, for carbohydrate sugars, and then for the nucleic acids, the nucleotides. Can we assign some general functions? What do these do? What do proteins do? What do carbohydrates do? What do nucleic acids do? Any functions that we know of? Go ahead. Great. Absolutely. So we're talking about structural proteins, where we're talking about proteins that are associated with muscle, uh, transport proteins. We're going to talk about membranes and how material can move in and out of a cell. How about nucleic acids? What, what is the primary function of a nucleic acid? What does it do? Stores information, right? Um, there actually were a couple of studies, very interesting ones, where they looked at nucleic acids and saw how that they can actually provide nutrient to certain types of cells. And we'll talk about those this semester, but if you're interested in that, perhaps do a search for nucleic acids and nutrients that can be used to support cells. In this case, they were looking at microbes. And then for carbohydrates, energy, absolutely. Uh, Rosa's going to talk quite a bit about energy and metabolism uh, as she works on her unit for you guys. So this is, uh, these are some general functions for these macromolecules that we'll see. And these are some very typical reactions that are constantly happening in our catabolic and our anabolic uh, pathways in order to break things down and build them up. So they're polymers. The reactions that will ultimately build up polymers from monomers are called condensation reactions. All right, when I learned this, we learned these as dehydration synthesis reactions. Ultimately, what you're looking at is the removal of water in order to bring two monomers together. So you can see here, as the monomers are brought together, the water is released. And in this case, you're introducing energy because you're now forming bonds. And then the opposite of that, to break these down, perhaps we're now talking about breaking something down in a catabolic reaction. I'll define what catabolic is and anabolic later. We're now adding water in to split these molecules apart. So we're removing the energy that's stored in these polymers. All right. So these are constantly happening as we bring in these nutrients. So everything that we bring in ultimately gets metabolized. They get broken down, and then they get reformed based on what our nucleic acids tell it to do. So we have the genetic information so that we can take these monomers and now put them into a new form. Pretty neat. Another typo. So proteins, there are 20 amino acids that make up proteins. And uh, you already told me some of the general uh, functions for a protein. Here's a list of some additional functions. We're going to spend a lot of time on enzymes all right, in the second half of this evening. Okay. But I talked about Ebola last time, right? Um, there's definitely a whole lecture that we can cover in Bio 2 on the immune system. Antibodies are proteins. So these are materials that our body will make in response to an infection so it can fight it off. 
I'm speaking very generally. So you have all these different categories of proteins and what they ultimately do. But what's the key to a protein and what makes it so uh, unique is its shape. So we're going to go through the shape piece by piece and understand it. There's so many possibilities for proteins. If you look at proteins, small ones, let's say 100 amino acids, relatively speaking, to the world of proteins, there are more combinations of amino acids, more sequence possibilities for a protein that's 100 amino acids long than there is the number of electrons in the universe. Quite amazing in terms of the possibilities for the sequence of proteins. It just goes to show you how diverse the world really is and the world really can be. Yes? Not all. That's a good question. Um, not all enzymes are proteins. And uh, I'm not really pitching classes here, but our head TF does teach a class on the world of RNA. So if you're interested, perhaps you want to take it at some point in time. Ribozymes, which are RNA molecules, also serve as enzymes. Most enzymes are protein-based, but there are some that are formed um, as RNA molecules that can catalyze a chemical reaction. So amino acids, uh, how does it look? What makes up the chemistry? Um, in what form do we typically see them? I talked about isomers. So there's an amino and a carboxyl group. The amino group, you may hear this, perhaps you listen to electron molecules. The amino group, we typically call this the N-terminus of a protein. Whereas the carboxyl group of the amino acid, when we look at the giant protein itself, if it is a giant protein, relatively speaking, this is the C-terminus. Let's use the green index cards, the neon green. How many people have heard N-terminus and C-terminus before by a show of your greens? How many of you heard of this before? If you haven't heard of it, maybe put your pink up so I can see a nice uh, sea of green and pink. All right, it's split pretty even, so I'm just trying to assess what you guys have heard in terms of terminology. Um, this portion of the amino acid is the amino group. Here's the carboxy group. Ultimately, when this comes together to form a giant protein with other amino acids, this end of it is the amino terminus and then the carboxy terminus. It's sort of like a designation for the different sides, or the different ends, rather, of the protein itself. And then we have the R group. This is also known as a side chain. So this is what varies from amino acid to amino acid. And in your book, there's a whole bunch of different classes of amino acids based on their properties of the R group, that is. So amino acids do exist as what we call isomers. And you saw that from the previous slide. Most of the amino acids are in this L form. So there's designation for the isomer, or for the symmetry, rather, in terms of how you're looking at the amino acid. Most of them are in this L form. And at pH 7, these groups are ionized. So we'll see the carboxyl will have lost the hydrogen, and the amino will have gained hydrogen. And again, this allows them ultimately to help form bonds, car covalent bonds, rather, once they interact with other amino acids. So all these amino acids have different side chains. I mentioned that. You have electrically charged ones, polar ones, which are hydrophilics, nonpolar, which are hydrophobics. So you have all these different types. 
and ultimately this allows the proteins to change or to form these different structures. So as we went over the first night with the basic chemistry, polar molecules will attract other polar molecules. So you'll see for proteins that are hydrophilic in certain regions, that will be the surface of the protein. That'll perhaps make contact with the aqueous environment that it's in, whereas the hydrophobic portion or the nonpolar groups will be in the interior of the molecule itself, or of the protein, rather. And here they are. Uh, so looking at the hydrophilic or the electrically charged ones, the uncharged are the hydrophilic, and then the hydrophobic molecules, or the hydrophobic amino acids, rather. And then you have the special classes, or the special cases, uh, the sulfhydryl containing amino acid, which is the cysteine. We'll see how this has the ability to form a disulfide bridge and tertiary structure. There are some rare cases where it happens in the quaternary structure as well. These ones are hydrophobic ones, all right? But they are special, especially for glycine, for example. This tends to be really small, and it tends to hang out in the interior of the molecule, all right? But you can definitely see here how there's some similarity between these two and some of the hydrophobic regions of these amino acids, like alanine, isoleucine, leucine, methionine, um, in the particular uh, groups and the particular R groups, the particular side chains. But you can see how these are capable of forming those hydrophilic interactions, um, both for the charged ones and for the polar but uncharged. So you have a lot of hydroxyl groups and some other bonds that allow these interactions to occur. So what brings amino acids together? And what do we call these bonds? All right. Now this reaction is no different than the general one I showed, which bring molecules together, the condensation reactions, where water is removed and then the bonds are formed. So what you have in a stretch of amino acids, which we call a protein or a polypeptide, many peptide linkages, are these peptide bonds, which are covalent bonds. They're very strong. They form in the primary structure, which I'll talk about. And we continue to link more amino acids onto the carboxy terminus. So proteins always grow from the carboxy terminus. Now I'm getting a little ahead of what I hope to cover tonight, but later in the semester when you learn about translation and how proteins are built, you'll see that they always add onto that carboxy terminus. And they keep growing according to the sequence. So these linkages ultimately affect the shape. So now we're beginning to move into how this basic sequence of a protein can form a structure, can form a shape. So you have the CN linkage. All right. And again, that's the peptide bond between the carboxy and the N-terminus. So the carboxy of one amino acid and the N-terminus of the next. The oxygen bound to the carbon in the carboxyl. Again, we're looking now at a slightly negative charge. And in the slight positive charge associated with the hydrogen bound and the nitrogen of the amino. So again, you have different charges that allow the protein to fold. So the primary structure, the take home to this, all this is is a sequence of amino acids held together by covalent bonds, which we call peptide bonds. That's all there is to a primary structure of a protein. Do we see this in living organisms? as the functional portion of the protein? Is this what transports oxygen, if we're talking about hemoglobin? It doesn't have that special shape. It doesn't have that unique structure. 
all it has is a sequence. But you can see here, each amino acid, and this is just a general depiction of them showing just R groups, each amino acid, according to the table, has a designation, all right? Has a certain type, has a certain makeup. And we have single letter abbreviations for these, but there's also three letter designations for them as well. But this ultimately is the backbone of a protein. And many researchers try to understand more about the, how the protein functions by changing these sequences around. So if you wanted to understand how a certain amino acid influences the folding of that protein, one can change it to figure out how it works. So perhaps swap out a hydrophilic for a hydrophobic one. What does that do to that region of the protein, but what does that do to the rest of the protein itself? The secondary structure now is hydrogen bonding. In this case, we have two possibilities. We have an alpha helix, or we have what are called beta-pleated sheets. But you can see here, the hydrogen bonds form between the oxygen here in one amino acid and the hydrogen of the other. So these amino acids, or these hydrogen bonds, form across stretches of amino acids. Whereas in the alpha helix, the hydrogen bonds form between amino acids that are really close in sequence. So this right-handed turn of the alpha helix, which one looks more similar to DNA? The one on the left, the one that I see pointing on the left. This one looks more similar to DNA. DNA also has hydrogen bonds, I'm getting ahead a little bit, between the nucleotides between the GCs and the ATs, all right? But for proteins, we have entire stretches of the protein that can form these hydrogen bonds. So it's possible that this region of the protein is between 30 and, let's say, 39 amino acid number. If you were to number the 100 amino acid protein, and let's say 51 and 63. Let's say those two regions of the protein meet up and form hydrogen bonds. So it's possible for that to occur as what's called a beta-pleated sheet. Now the tertiary structure, here's where we begin to become a lot more unique for the protein itself. In fact, many proteins are active and are functional in this form. So many proteins function in this tertiary form. So you can see here alpha helices as well as some beta sheets, but you also see some additional bonding that occurs. In this case, perhaps it's a disulfide bond forming across two cysteines, all right? Um, there's another hydrogen bond up here. This is possible in tertiary structure. It's not associated with the beta sheets or the alpha helices, but it's another weak interaction possibility for the tertiary structure of a protein. So there's a whole list um, of interactions that may occur in the tertiary structure. In this case, perhaps the strong covalent could be the cysteine uh, disulfide bridge that forms across those two cysteine uh, amino acids. Right. And this is another example of a salt bridge that can form um, between two amino acids, again, based on charges. These are all weak interactions. How can you break up a weak interaction? What's one thing you can do? What's one physical introduction? Absolutely. You can heat it up. Okay, I'm going to talk about some different experiments that were done that utilize chemical 
but you can also heat these up to denature the protein. So you may have already seen this, especially with myoglobin in one of my introductory slides. There's three typical ways to look at proteins uh, using computers and programs. Um, you can have the space filling model, the stick model, it shows you all the bends, and then the ribbon model, model which shows you all those alpha helices and beta pleated sheets. Um, these ones are nice when we're looking at targets uh, to try to come up with new drugs uh, that can perhaps inhibit the effect of some enzyme, let's say. Let's say this is an enzyme that um, transcribes um, DNA into, into RNA as part of the uh, HIV virus. So a reverse transcriptase inhibitor would stop that process, and perhaps one can study it based on what the structure of the enzyme looks like. So you'd come up with a drug that targets that and that specifically interacts with it. Now the quaternary structure. Not all proteins make this. Some proteins stop at the tertiary structure and it's functional. For example, myoglobin. But for hemoglobin, the subunits that were the tertiary structures need to come together. So this is just a general depiction of a quaternary structure. Hemoglobin itself, you can see how the alpha and the beta subunits will come together, and you can see how the heme groups are arranged within this whole quaternary structure. Now we have a larger protein, and now we have a protein that can achieve some function. Right. So what holds this all together are weak interactions. Right. We're not looking at uh, strong bonds that occur or that form and hold this particular form of hemoglobin together. So heat was mentioned as something that can denature a protein. Um, has anyone ever ran a, a protein gel before? Curious. Couple hands. Yeah, I mean, perhaps some of us worked in a lab and we studied proteins. Um, that protein gel, what did it achieve? What did it tell you about the protein? If you ran, let's say it was an SDS page gel. Go ahead. Absolutely, how big it is. All right. Now, what would be the best way to study that protein? What one of the four uh, confirmations to determine the size? To accurately determine the size. You need to denature it, so you need to bring it down to perhaps that primary structure so that you can get a very accurate measurement of the molecular weight for the protein. So denaturing proteins is utilized to study them. You can heat denature it, um, but you can also chemically denature it. All right? So let's talk a little bit about a class experiment, really, that was mentioned in your book in 1961 by Anfinson, who showed that you can denature a protein but then see it come right back together to its original form. All right? So you take it apart, and then it comes back together. It's almost like, I don't know if you guys have ever seen these. I don't know if, they're, if it's still popular now. I just remember back in the day, those candles, if you have a candle on a birthday cake, if this is what you celebrate, and you, you blow them out, and then they come back on. You know, like, like, what's going on there? What's the chemistry at play in that situation? Well, in this case, you denature the protein using a chemical, and then you take the chemical away, and slowly that protein comes right back together. So what exactly is happening? Right, what's taking place? So this really introduced a new way of looking at proteins and accurately determining what's the weight of the protein, how does the protein function, how does it behave, what's necessary in order for it to behave and function.
So let's check out a, a video on proteins. So that's the primary structure when the amino acids are covalently bound that they're mentioning on the bottom. But you can see the secondary effects and the secondary structure here with the alpha helices, the beta-pleated sheets, but how the rest of the protein ultimately folds on itself to form something that can be functional. So not the entire protein forms the alpha, alpha helices and beta sheets, but the protein is dynamic. It doesn't really stop, it constantly moves. It's always changing bonds, breaking them, reforming them. But it stays pretty much similar to the structure that it wants to be in order for it to achieve some effect in the cell. So they're showing you back and forth between part of rib instruction, structure, part space filling model. And now they're just trying to just get you all crazy. So. I think the first part of the video is the more instructive part. Now we're just getting a little bit beyond, but hopefully it excites you about this stuff. Because I know this is very interesting to me. All right. So let's look at the factors ultimately that, that influence uh, the function of a, of a protein. So we saw how proteins can form different shapes and different conformations, but now exactly what influences the function, right? Um, if we look at an outlet, all right, we know that in order for us to use it, we need to have a certain shape of a plug that can fit into the outlet. But beyond that, there's interaction between the metal of the plug and the receptor or the outlet that we're plugging into that allows the electricity to flow. So proteins are a lot like that in that they have a certain shape, but then there's also an additional interaction that occurs between those functional groups and what it's binding to. So in this case, we can see these interactions that occur between these two, perhaps, proteins. So here's uh, a little quiz, perhaps. The first one, the first interaction that we're looking at here, what type of interaction is that? by a show of your cards. So majority looks like we have ionic attractions. Yes, that is an ionic attraction between the two groups, the carboxy and the amino group. How about the next one? What type of interaction is that? These aren't very well labeled, by the way, but perhaps relative to the others and the choices that we're left with, Yes, yeah, so those are the hydrophobic interactions, all right? So this is two portions of the molecule um, that want to be close together because they're both hydrophobic. And then the last one, again, this is what we started out talking about in the course. Water does it all the time. Your pinks, these are the hydrogen bonds that form. So all these types of chemistry between the R groups of a protein hold it together. Now, what can disrupt these weak interactions? Well, and this, I think, just got thrown a little bit out of, um, out of proportion, um, but I think everyone has it clear in their slide sets. Yes, temperature will affect 
the hydrogen bonds, it'll break the hydrogen bonds. Um, DNA, for example, you can heat it up, it'll break its hydrogen bonds and it'll come right back together when it's cooled down according to the sequence. All right, but then you have some other physical effects that you can influence or use to change and disrupt the weak interactions. Um, change in pH can influence the ionization of those R groups. All right. Uh, polar substances like urea that can disrupt the hydrogen bonds. The experiment that I talked about earlier, the chemical disruption that denatured the protein used urea and mercaptoethanol. And nonpolar substances like various gases that can disrupt those hydrophobic interactions. So there are different things that one can use um, to disrupt those weak interactions, not all of which occur in our body. So like, for example, a lot of these gases we won't necessarily see as disruptor of these bonds in our body. But for urea, we'll see that. So what do we think? Has anyone ever been able to do this? Take an egg, cook it, if that's what you like to eat, and reverse that process. Cards, it's not reversible. I haven't seen anyone do it. All right? So we can't change this. Um, just a couple interesting pieces of information when we talk about eggs. Um, the white part, yes, this is mostly uh, protein-based, um, but the yolk, not only does that contain cholesterol, but there's some other uh, macromolecules in there, like lipids. Um, there's also some proteins in there as well. But what's really interesting about the white part um, is how much water is found associated with it. It's actually 90% water. Okay? When you heat something up and you take water out, there's no more water to come back in to bring it back into the original form. All right? So you really you deprive it of the water, and this type of reaction is really not, not reversible because you're taking all the water away. So proteins change shape. If it wasn't evident from the video that was a little psychedelic at the end, <laughs> Perhaps now I'm telling you, and your textbook is telling you, that proteins constantly change shape. All right? So they interact with other molecules. And by interacting with these other molecules, it causes them to change shape. So now, if we go back to the outlet here, I know that nothing's going to happen to the outlet when I plug something in. If I do, I probably should turn off the main power, because that's not good. This should just stay the way it is. But proteins will interact with something that causes it to change shape. And proteins can also go through these modifications that will cause the shape to change as well. All right, this almost looks like a, a person looking down. But we're going to get into the, to the nuts and the bolts of this. But we're talking about all these shape changes. How do these shapes change? Is it just based on shape and functional groups? Or is there something else that plays a big role in this? And indeed, there is. And this is a really cool area of research right now looking at tumors and looking at the chaperones that help the tumor survive and how to interfere with the chaperone that helps propagate the tumor. So let me tell you a little about what chaperones are and try to better understand how this can be used as a new treatment for cancer. So proteins, if we haven't already noticed, uh, can change depending on the environment. Maybe an adverse environment that causes it to change. Maybe a toxic environment that causes it to change. So as soon as it's synthesized, and as soon as it begins to fold, or right before, rather, it's vulnerable to change. It's also vulnerable to change after it's denatured. 
even though I said that it has the ability to go back to its original form, you're opening it up all of its R groups. Its R groups can now interact with other proteins, perhaps, because they're exposed. So before you fold or refold a protein, you may actually have on the surface the binding of an incorrect molecule, because it wasn't what was initially there. So the solution here is chaperones. So chaperones ultimately help fold proteins. And they work like this. So their primary goal, or their primary function, is to protect the 3D structure of a protein. So the protein itself, it is a protein. A chaperone is a protein. And a lot of them have been um, studied in different organisms. Um, in some cases, uh, even microbes, bacteria specifically where they looked at these heat shock proteins. Uh, in this case, we're looking at a heat shock protein that has the ability to wrap itself around a protein and protect it. So what happens is the protein goes into this structure, goes through these conformational folds, and it comes out. It's almost like an assembly line effect. So that the protein, when it is vulnerable, after it's been synthesized or after it's been denatured, it can correctly fold into the proper conformation. So again, I mentioned this, and if you're interested in this, you can look this up. There are drugs that inhibit chaperones that play a big role in tumors. And tumors have proteins that need to fold in a certain way. So this is something that um, is being looked at specifically in tumors. And what's nice about it is that these chaperones associated with the tumors aren't used to fold our normal cells. So that's awesome because it has specificity. And uh, I don't think this one is nearly as psychedelic as the last. Um, but let's check out the molecular chaperones and how they work. I'm going to talk about, at the end of class tonight, um, these various illnesses that cause our proteins to clump and aggregate. Chaperones can also help prevent these clumping events from taking place within proteins. So again, this just recaps uh, some of what we learned about hydrophobic portions of a protein. They'll all be on the inside of the protein when these proteins are in aqueous environments. But depending on the conditions, they may unfold a little bit exposing various R groups to the environment. And this can cause the protein to aggregate or clump with other proteins of the same type or even proteins of different types. So these chaperones really are a system of making sure that the protein will maintain itself. So the chaperone can come in and when it unfolds, protect it, interact with it, so that it can come back to its initial or that, so that it can come back to its original uh, conformation that, that was active. So here you can see some chaperones uh, moving these proteins along, helping them refold into their uh, proper conformation. All right, how, where are we in this? And this can also be like, you know, you can translate 
or hold up the pink if I'm going fast. If you need, you know, you need him to slow down, you can modify that. I see some green, I see a couple yellow, uh, red here and there, or pink here and there. Okay, all right. And again, uh, I'm going to take a quick five-minute break to ten minute. Give yourself a round of applause because I saw a lot of green cards go up and a lot of yellow cards go up, so that's pretty awesome. Um, but again. Uh, Keep going through this material, study this stuff. Let's take 10 minutes. So these are the ones that we have left from the ones that you gave out. Okay, cool. Yeah, that's what I figured. Hopefully they'll hold on to them. I'll do that at the end. We should have a little uh, folder with an insert for index cards. Yeah, how you doing? Good. Yep, I usually do that last week or Wednesday I did it like at night after the class. Okay. So what I'll do is I'll take these ones that are all completed. Those will be on the, on the eyesight. Okay. Yep, and then I think last time I put them on like maybe like an hour after class ended or two hours, but it'll be somewhere around there. You're welcome. Hi, how you doing? Good. Yeah. What's your name? Okay. Okay, um, did you receive an email that showed you there's a little, did you try to click on the login button in the upper right that says login? So you can't log in. Um, okay, and you're registered for the class? Yes, okay. Yeah. And you haven't gotten one? Okay, hmm. Let's see. Yeah, because that's what I would have told you to do is send them an email so they can respond to you so that you are able to get in. And you did that, yeah. Okay. Um, let me check into that. You can also check with Casey, our head TF, and see if she has any insight into that. I'm surprised that you can't get in. She might also be able to check to make sure you're on the list so that you can see the eyesight too. That's a possibility. So see if you can check with her. But let me know how that goes at the end of class. So that if that, you know, if, if that doesn't work out, we'll, we'll figure something else out so you can get on there. All right? You're welcome. How you doing? Yeah. So I have a couple. Um, I'm listening. Sort of uh, papers, I guess. Yeah. Um, so I have a hearing loss, and I, I, I other students ask questions, it would be really helpful if you I'll try to reword them. Yeah, no problem. I'll do that. Yeah. Definitely. Thanks. Yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. And that would just like if you know when you're talking, if you could join the slides, so the sound comes down a little bit more when I, no problem. And you can also, you can also, um, one thing that's nice about this class, I know the first class we just have audio from it, but as of tonight, um, they're rolling cameras with the audio. So if there's portion of the classes that like, you know, you miss or whatever, you can go back to that and watch it over. I always like, to have like headphones on when I'm listening to something because then it cancels out all the background noise. That's me. So that, that might be helpful um, when you're going through the material um, and then if there's something in the lecture that, you know, that was like someone was rummaging their papers or what have you. So, okay? Okay, thank you. Thanks for the tip. Hi. How you doing? Yeah. For biochemistry, you would. For this class, um, you know, you should be able to get by without. I won't have you write the structures out. Yeah. yeah. But you do want to know, okay, which ones are hydrophobic, which ones are hydrophilic. But you will not be writing out the structures. 
um, when we get into the metabolic pathways, which Rosa will be covering yep. in a couple weeks, you won't have to write out the whole biochemical pathways. In chemistry, or in biochemistry rather, that's where you would have to remember you know, the whole biochemical pathway. A great question in that class is, okay, suppose you, um, suppose you label one of the carbons yeah. of an amino acid, yeah. um, or of some compound for, let's say, Krebs cycle, we're gonna talk about that. Sure. Where is that label, the carbon, in this step of the cycle, ah, but we won't do but that. We, we don't, we don't yeah, we won't. We won't do that okay, here. I just to make sure. So just know the general properties oh, of the amino acids and the functional groups of them and how they. Behave. Yeah, yeah, of course, right. Um, a quick question about the lecture. Uh, for beta sheets, right? Do you yep. need uh, two polypeptide chains, two separate polypeptide chains, or can you form beta uh, groupings within a single polypeptide? They typically form. That's a good question. They typically form within the same protein of secondary structure. Um, now, if it happens across two polypeptides, like in a quaternary structure, yep. in that case, if it's a hydrogen bond that forms, yep. it's a hydrogen bond sure. in one location. It's usually not a stretch of amino acids. Ah, it. So it would be very atypical for that to happen. Ah, so, so they normally form just normally within protein. very similar to alpha uh, yep. helix structure. Within the within intimacy the of that protein. Ah, okay. So, yeah. Hi. I have a couple of questions. Go ahead. So, so one is... Uh, uh, when you were talking about uh, condensation and hydrolysis yeah. reactions, I noticed that you uh, pulled out this energy is released mm -hmm. from your slide. I was just oh, wondering. I? Yeah. Let me take a look at that. Yeah. Yeah, there was something. It did. It did something interesting on the. Uh, it's in the beginning. Yeah. Oh, you just missed it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So I was just wondering if there was any like content-related reason for that. Yeah, you know what happened? And what I'll Maybe do... Maybe the picture overtook it. Yeah, and what I'll do is, one thing that you guys can do... Oh, there we go. So, but what okay. I'll do is, um, I mean, I, I apologize for that. What I'll do is, um, these slides, once the presentation's over, I'll yeah. put the, the, the complete one yeah. up there, um, and it'll you can double check yours over. Okay. Um, yeah. Because, yeah, that, that, that happened. I'm going to yeah. look more carefully into that so that that doesn't happen in future uh, Okay. Yeah, it's okay. I was, just, lectures. I was just wondering in case yeah. that was not actually the case. Or, yeah. yeah. Um, my other question was uh, with regards to... Besides oh, that, sorry. I'm sorry, to go back to that, besides that, did you see anywhere else where, where there were issues like that? No. Just that one? Okay. Yeah, just that one. Cool. Thanks yeah. for bringing that to my attention. Uh, no problem. Um, the, other, the other question was uh, with regards to tertiary structure, um, it noted uh, like strong interactions being covalent and the others being weak. Yep. And I was just wondering what makes ionic interactions weaker than covalent interactions? Sure. So ultimately, what makes something strong or weak, we're looking at the bond energy. So how much energy does it take to disrupt yeah. that bond? For a covalent bond, it's, it's much stronger. Yeah, it's yeah. somewhere like on the order of like, um, I mean, 50 to 110 yeah. uh, kilocalories per mole. Yeah versus some of the ionics, I mean, three to seven kilocalories per mole. Yeah. Um, but ultimately for the ionic, and this is where a covalent bond is a true bond. It's a true sharing of the electrons. Right. Whereas the ionic attractions, um, just, they're really just transferring those ions. And yeah. it's really something it's that can be more easily. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So yeah. that's why, that's the main reason why one's stronger than the other. It takes yeah. a lot more energy to break the covalent bond than it would the ionic interactions okay. between the two. All right, thank you. You're welcome. Hi. Really quickly, and I don't have my slides because so I actually didn't print them okay. out tonight. 
but it was on one of the slides. Yeah. It was a card question about, like, it was hydrogen bond, hydrophilic bond, or ionic yeah, let me, bond. Yeah, let me bring that one up. Okay, perfect. Thank you. The one with the three choices. Exactly. Um, there you yeah. go. How did we know that the middle one was hydrophobic? Because I understood the I sure. I can see the hydrogen so bond in the this case, bond. In this case, something like this, and you'll see this more in organic chemistry. Right. Each one of these are carbons. All right? So, I mean, with hydrogens, right, all around. Um, there's nothing in there that makes it polar. Okay. All right, so this is a hydrophobic region okay. of those two molecules. Okay. So that's what makes it hydrophobic. Okay. So these are just two ring so structures. From, from that picture, how did everyone know? Just the, oh, because it was ring structures. So we you, yeah, so you say you didn't present. Um, last time we went over. I, I was here last yeah. time, and I read the yeah. chapters before. Yeah, oh yeah, before. and then the rings, I'm glad you brought this up, because ring structures I didn't even introduce. Okay. But those are all carbons. Okay. And is it, did you, have you taken uh, chemistry recently? I took Gen Chem last you took year. took Gen Chem last year? Right okay, cool. So, organic, yeah. you're going you're gonna to see this more. You're going right, to recognize so. those ring structures more. Okay, okay, cool. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. I don't know if they were waiting or if you guys were waiting. Yeah, no, it's okay. I'll take all the questions anyway, though, but go ahead. I don't know if you know, but like, what are you waiting for? So the lecture videos, okay, so tonight they're rolling. They weren't on Wednesday, but we do have audio from Wednesday. So audio will be up, and then the lecture one will be up very soon. Okay. Usually in the beginning of the semester, it takes a little extra time because you're getting all the videos up for all the classes. But then once we start, like for example, in two weeks from now, tape the next video, it'll go up much faster. But in the beginning, there's usually a little delay. Have you checked the discussion forum? Because on the discussion forum, it just says basically what I just said. So as soon as it goes back up, we'll go ahead and say, okay, videos are ready on the discussion forum. Just so you don't have to keep checking. I think the discussion forum, the way it works on my website, is when I log in, it just shows like a feed of like, all, it's like a news feed. Yeah, I, I don't think it does that. Yeah. But, uh, but they'll be on there soon. Okay, they'll be on there soon. You're welcome. Yes. So I had a quick question. Yeah. Um, the 20 amino acids, how well do we need to know those? You're not going to like ask not us to the draw them, right? Not the structures. Okay. No, no, not the structures. But do know the properties of each. Okay. So what I would do, and it's just a suggestion. Everyone studies differently. Um, come up with a mnemonic for saying, okay, what are the hydrophobics? What are the hydrophilics? What are the special ones? What are, you know, what are the hydrophilics that are electrically charged? What are the hydrophilics that are polar? Come up with a way of remembering all those. Okay. Um, but you will not need to know the structures. So you wouldn't like give us a secondary... Um, model of a protein and say name this with the one letter like no okay no 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 I would not do that that okay. would be a that would be a bio, cool biochemistry question like a biochem course but, just um, but in gen in bio where we're really introducing you guys to these these components, um, components. Okay. yeah um, but know you know the different functions or know the different uh, basic properties to them. Okay. Um, yeah, you don't have to spend. That would take a while. I, I mean, that, that takes a long time. We're going through it with Orgo right now. Yeah, no, and, and that would take I, I a. Just, I, I just, I'd rather know now no. than know like two days before the exam. No, and no. I see like on the exam. No, you know, we wouldn't. Or we wouldn't do that in this okay. class. But okay. um, but at least it's good. I mean, you know, when I first learned, uh, probably in biochemistry about amino acids, your instructor said, "Okay, let's take glycine. All right, it's the smallest amino acid." And from there. He showed us how if you just know what glycine is, you'll know what all the rest are. You just build off of that. Okay. But uh, but again, Teach you won't need to. You want exactly, and you won't need to memorize it for this course. Okay. Good, but it Double check. That's a good question. Um, I can also check. With the other co-instructors, because like for example, Rosa, she'll be covering uh, energy and metabolism. 
And um, for that, you'll see in the pathways, there'll be structures in your book, but even your book abbreviates a lot of the structures. So I wouldn't want you to you know, go ahead and find a biochem book and learn all those structures, memorize them. You're not going to be doing that for the course. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you. You're welcome. I wanted to ask you yeah. about um, chaperone molecules. Yeah. I'm feeling a little confused about um, sort of tertiary and quaternary structures of those, because those are proteins too, right? They're and proteins. I'm wondering if I'm getting confused by that like sort of metaphorical drawing with the lid and the thing. Yep. But so in the video that we just saw, there's like a bunch of different parts of them. Is that, that like all one that was showing That was showing like, multiple chaperones. Okay. Jumping on, I'm going to use that, I hope you don't mind, jumping on each protein okay. or attaching to each protein because it showed three proteins that were vulnerable that came together and aggregated when the chaperones went around. Right. But when those three were now chaperones, they weren't doing that clumping. Right, so in that case, those were individual chaperones. And so was that then like the, the quaternary structure? Depends on the chaperone, of, yeah. I mean, offhand, I would say most of them um, are... The heat shock proteins, a lot of them are in the tertiary form, okay. but there there may be some in the quaternary form. I wouldn't ask you something that specific. I'll just put okay. that out there. Yeah. But for your general interest, which is good, um, depends on the protein itself. Okay. Depends on the protein. But ultimately, yeah, there is um, an interaction where it encloses it and brings it in. A lot of membrane proteins, when we move into plasma membranes for the next lecture, you'll see, are in quaternary form. Because you have each of these subunits that come together to make a channel through the protein so right. the material can move in and out. For the chaperones, I have to look more closely. There's a lot of different ones out there. Um, but for the most part, um, they're going to hold the protein in its form and allow it to refold if it was denatured. Right, That's the general need, premise to a chaperone. But so in order to have a chaperone function, then you need a bunch of them to be there not for necessarily, one protein? Yeah, not necessarily, yeah. If the protein has like multiple hydrogen. Oh, yeah. If there's, or if there's multiple proteins. So like if you have like five proteins, and there's only one chaperone, it's not gonna accommodate those other proteins. So those other proteins may misfold. Right. So you need to have enough chaperone molecule. So the amount of chaperones depends in the, in the quantity of hydrophobic um, types, unions in the, in the protein? The chaperone, the general premise to a chaperone is it makes sure that those conformations reform as they were originally whether it's hydrophobic interactions that it needs to help maintain, or ionic attractions that it needs to bring, any of those weak interactions that were disrupted, it'll allow them to reform in the confines of the chaperone molecule itself. Basically, it, what it does is it prevents other proteins from binding to it, is what it does, but at the same time, it allows it to form its own interactions. So the, high, so the chaperone itself doesn't form all these bonds with it and stay permanently attached. It's a temporary, it's a short-lived thing. So does the chaperone protein then like not have any hydrophobic regions and it's just... Um, it's, that one, it depends on the chaperone. Okay. It depends on the chaperone. I see what you're saying though, but it depends on the chaperone. Okay, thanks. Yeah. But I think based on what you guys know and what we've talked about on chaperones, yeah. I think you should be fine for what I'm gonna ask about chaperones. But it's good because now you're thinking deeper and you're thinking more about this and perhaps for those problems, you'll be able to better answer those questions. And then for my general acknowledge, yeah. my question will be like, if it's possible for a protein just to stay like that, not to go to its original form? When you say original, meaning like the primary structure? Yeah, the primary structure. Yeah, proteins, unless they're denatured, unless they're introduced to heat or some chemical or some harsh environmental condition, um, they'll stay in their tertiary or quaternary structure. They won't go back to that primary structure, so unless there's some activity that causes them to do that. 
It's not, um, I mean, in, in living systems, it's not common for it to go back to the primary structure. In certain adverse environments, it may be. But organisms, and we'll see this in the second half of this course, organisms have evolved ways of dealing with those situations. So they've evolved proteins that can remain stable in those hotter environmental conditions, let's say, for example. Can you predict how a protein will denature based on the kind of um, like stimulus? So like if you have a given protein, there are there like predictable shapes yes. that it forms? Yes, yes, yes. And a lot of that you can model it. But not until you experimentally prove it to support the model do you know for sure. I mean, those crystal structures of, um, I'll leave it, actually I won't go before 1958 for myoglobin because I'm less familiar with those studies. Um, but yeah, predictions need to be supported with experiments for sure. You're welcome. Good questions. Interesting questions. Yes. So, reading through the properties of the first, I felt like I didn't really Sure. One thing that can be helpful, and I know I was going over this just before class with someone, the myoglobin and the hemoglobin problem, see if you can break all the information down into a table. And then from there, based on what I went over about the two, see if that helps and see if you can make the connections. A lot of times in problem sets, this is just based on like my experience with many students working on problem sets in the past, is that the information in a, like a paragraph format like that, I need to break it down and then organize everything so I can say, okay, exactly what is this asking me? So yeah, I'd have to sit down with you and like figure out, okay, well, you know, what, you know, what part of it are we not getting? I mean, you're going to practice these also in discussion section. See how that goes. You know, see how those. Yep. I can talk. Yeah. Yeah. Professor, I had I had a, a question about the research department. I was reading that you were the head of it. Yeah, at the extension school. The extension school. How, like, it would be possible for me, like, kind of like, what should I do in order? Talk to, so okay, so when you go to the extent, so you're interested in a, in a program, right? Yes. Um, do you have your, you have your bachelor's degree? No. No? Okay. I'm doing it. You're doing it at the extension school? By yes. Case? Okay, cool. All right, now if you have more questions about that, um, go to the website. Okay. There's like a red sort of like, you know, you want to obtain information button. Yes. Click on that and ultimately they'll set you up with it like an admissions advisor. Okay. Um, so that you can talk more about programs, because you're interested in programs beyond the uh, I, undergraduate degree? I am interested in doing research works. Okay. Like, to be part of it, because for medical school, I want to have experience in doing research. In doing research, yeah. And besides that, I kind of study that people that have been part of them have been more like proactive and more like yeah. influenced. So you're interested in conducting research, right? Yes. Like in the lab? Yeah, I mean, talk to me throughout the semester about that. Um, it's sometimes difficult to find work in a lab. Um, what's nice is if, is if, you know, I mean, obviously there may be more volunteer opportunities yes. than like a permanent like type of position. Oh yeah, that's what um, I'm looking most. Yeah, talk to people. Um, sometimes, and if I hear anything, I'll, I'll let you know. You know, um, especially if it's a certain area that you may be interested in. Um, but talk to me more as we go through the semester. I so will. I can So I can learn more about what your interests are. Thank you. And I'll keep that in mind. I can't guarantee, though. <laughs> it do, it yeah. doesn't matter. Whatever you can do will be fine. I'll keep that in mind. But I'm really interested about that. I'm more, I'm, I'm more faster learning, like doing it, seeing it, and just reading it. Cool. And besides, I really like this. Awesome. Well, we'll and see what we can do. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Rocking it, right? All right.
are we doing? Do you want to make any general announcements before I start the second? You're good? Okay. Okay. So this is a little blurred out. Um, it's not one of your typical laundry detergents. Um, but if we were able to see that solution on the left, we'd find that it has, I believe, what they say, triple enzyme activity. So what exactly is this? And what the heck does laundry stain lifter have to do with stickies or post-its? And I know that many people use quite a few of these stickies. And uh, one thing that um, has to do with the stickies and how it may be difficult to recycle them is the adhesive aspect to the sticky. So why do these two relate to each other? Well, you can't use this particular uh, laundry stain lifter uh, for, the, for the stickies and, and breaking up that adhesive. So let's start out with the stickies. The stickies actually have these uh, certain bonds called ester bonds that can be broken up by esterases. So when the paper industry and the recycling industry breaks this paper down, they ultimately have to introduce these enzymes called esterases to help alleviate or break up that sticky aspect to the paper. Otherwise, it really interferes with the whole recycling process. It actually costs the paper industry a lot of money because it damages their equipment. I mean, you may think, okay, there's just a little bit of sticky on this, but if you look at the grand scheme of things, when someone in their one little confines of their office has this many stickies and they're recycling all those, I mean, that's a lot of stickies. For the stain lifters, um, a lot of the stains, uh, have we ever taken clothing to a, to a dry cleaner perhaps to pull a stain out that we weren't able to pull out? Do you just turn in the garment and say, hey, clean this? Do they ever ask you questions about it? What may they ask you? Absolutely. What type of food got on your clothing? You know, and you've got to think back, well, what was I eating that evening? And perhaps you remember or you don't remember. What makes that possible at that point is they know exactly what stain lifter to use. In this particular material, I wouldn't be surprised if there's lipases in there which help break up lipids, which are components of fats that may be in food that we were just eating. Perhaps it was a, an Italian meal, if that's what we like to eat, uh, and we got some sauce on our shirt that has grease in it. These materials can help break that up. Now, the basis for all this are enzymes. Enzymes break down chemicals. They catalyze chemical reactions but we can see here that there's a market for very specific enzymes. There's an interest, and it goes way beyond this. There's this very strong interest right now for enzymes that can work across many temperatures, high temperatures, low temperatures, to expand the use of perhaps our laundry detergent at both hot and cold water. Why do we wash clothing in hot water? Some people may just have a preference. Maybe it depends on the color of the garment. All right, maybe a lot of healthcare workers say, I'm going to cook my clothes so whatever uh, my clothing may have been exposed to from the patients is killed. All right, well, how great would it be if we had laundry detergents that worked effectively well at high temperatures and low temperatures? So there's a lot of interest for developing and for engineering, really. A lot of this work has been done to make these enzymes functional at multiple temperatures. So I'm really just setting the stage for enzymes. I am going to introduce them right now, but at least you can see how this all applies to what we do. 
So chemical reactions ultimately break down material or build them up. So when we break down material, we're talking about the catabolic reactions. So if we just ingested a whole meal, we're going to be breaking down those various macromolecules and releasing energy. All I'm going to tell you today is that this is or has a negative delta G, which is the free energy. It releases energy. You can also say that this is exergonic. Whereas the opposite, to build up, these are the anabolic reactions, which will have a positive delta G. So this consumes energy to make your complex molecules. So if we go back to the proteins and how the monomers went through these dehydration or these condensation reactions to form polymers, all right, we're building up. These are anabolic reactions. They require energy in order to do so. And these graphs you're going to see again when we talk about enzymes and inactivation energy specifically. But here you can see how energy is released and how energy is perhaps built up in terms of making products from reactants or in terms of breaking down products from reactants. So these are complete opposite of each other. Now we have two reactions up on the uh, overhead. Obviously, what type of reactions are these? Do these require energy or do these release energy? They release energy. Okay. Um, do they happen on their own? Well, for the first one, it may not be so obvious. But we know for the second one, without a spark, we're not going to see anything fantastic, all right, illuminating the night sky. So these sparks are enzymes. So we need to ultimately, in order for the oxygen to react with the fireworks and form the carbon dioxide, we ultimately need a spark. So we need something that can get over that initial barrier, which we call the activation energy. But before I get to that, let's just briefly introduce the players. So the enzymes, and we addressed this earlier, most of them are proteins. Some of them are ribozymes. And I mentioned the course taught by Casey on the RNA world. You'll learn more about ribozymes in that course if you're interested. Um, but perhaps you have a lot on your platter for this semester. I think there's still time to register, yes? Yeah, but I <laughs> So not a good idea. All right. Perhaps in the future. Cool. So guest lecture, or uh, that's fine. <laughs> so enzymes are catalysts. So what is a catalyst? It's something that speeds up a chemical reaction, very generally speaking. All right. And then ultimately, don't confuse the enzyme necessarily with a chaperone. But the enzyme does have the ability to contain a chemical reaction and allow it to proceed at a much faster rate reducing that activation energy. So really, it's a binding site for what's going to react. Enzymes typically are much larger than your substrates. So the energy barrier ultimately controls the rate of that reaction. So you need to drop that energy barrier down. And we do this with enzymes. So the energy barrier is also known as activation energy. If I were to set up a whole bunch of hurdles uh, in the front of the room and uh, hop over them as I was running, I would find that it's going to take me much longer to get from this side to that side 
than if I were to not have any hurdles there. Okay? So think of that analogy when we're going through this activation energy. Activation energy ultimately is analogous to that hurdle. And by knocking those hurdles over, it's like introducing enzymes. We're dropping down the energy that we need to spark that reaction, to get it going. So you can see this here depicted with your plot of free energy over the time of the experiment. You have your reactants that have a certain amount of delta G or a certain amount of free energy associated with them and in the products, and then the difference in the free energy between the reactants and the products. But you have this initial energy barrier here, which the reactants need to overcome. We lower these energy barriers with enzymes. So once this activation energy is reached, the transition state is achieved, and then the reactants begin to form products. This is the general idea of how enzymes catalyze chemical reactions. So the transition state is only temporary. And they have a higher free energy than the actual reactants. So the activation energy necessary for the transition state, ultimately, that's going to be significant, but it's going to be spread out over the course of the reaction. So it's actually not calculated in part of the net change, all right, or the delta G. So the free energy or the activation energy is not necessarily factored into the total delta G of a chemical reaction. So heat versus enzymes. Um, I didn't talk too much about heat in terms of how they can function similar to an enzyme, but will they both catalyze a chemical reaction? Yeah, they'll both catalyze a chemical reaction. But why is heat not feasible to a living system? Do we just heat up our body so everything can go faster? So I can get better from a sickness, let's say, for example, and all my immune system reactions will happen and proceed at a faster pace? Obviously, that's not feasible. Obviously, we resort to chemicals in our body that can help speed up these chemical reactions. And we have a huge diversity of enzymes that can achieve this. So this shows how specific the interaction is between the substrate and the enzyme. I mentioned that enzymes typically are much larger than substrates. But not only can you see that this enzyme is much larger, you can see how perhaps the substrate could fit right into this particular location of the enzyme. This is called the active site. So the substrate will interact with the active site. It needs to fit into the space based on shape but it also needs to interact with the functional groups that are present within that portion of the enzyme. This particular enzyme in the reaction that we're showing here is catalyzed by lysozyme. Does anyone know where lysozyme is found? Do we make lysozyme? Well, what about bacteria? We make lysozyme. Where can we find this in our body? The eye secretions or the tears all right, we can find this, for example, saliva. All right, now what does this do to bacteria? Breaks them up, breaks up the cell wall. Perhaps you learned this in another course or you'll learn this in the future. It breaks down the cell wall. So here you can see lysozyme breaking up the cell wall, which is called peptidoglycan. You don't need to know this for this course particularly, um, but it's just showing you an example of reaction into those particular products. So this cell wall now is no longer intact and that bacterial organism will die. It can no longer survive because it cannot survive the osmotic effect of the environment that it may be in.
so the cell will just rupture if it's not stabilized. After the enzyme interacts with the active site, then the products are released. So this is what enzyme catalyst does. So a couple of specific aspects to an enzyme. Uh, we've already established that it contains an active site. This is where the substrate will bind. And these reactants base or will bind uh, not only based on the shape, but also on the functional groups that are present. And this just gives you a very general sort of range of amino acids that are found within this amino acid or within this active site that interacts with the substrate. Um, most enzymes end in ACE, um, but there are some other ones out there that it may end in SIN, so it really depends on the, on the enzyme itself. And then another portion of the enzyme may tell us something about what it does. So I indicated or I mentioned lipases. So lipases are enzymes, ends in ACE, that break up lipids. There's also proteases that will break up, what do you think? And in the substrates, so the reactants are the substrates. So in chemistry, we learn reactants, products. Substrates are reactants. And again, I mentioned they're typically smaller than an enzyme. So you can see in this case, a couple of different substrates interacting with the enzyme hexokinase. This is really like the light switch of your cells to determine whether or not you'll use glucose. And you'll ultimately use it for energy, all right? So we need a little bit of energy in order to make energy. So here's some ATP, we'll learn more about that as we go through the semester. Glucose, there's the interaction, and then it begins to initiate this process, this metabolic pathway of utilizing glucose and forming more ATP, more energy for the cell to perform work. We call this interaction an induced fit. So we're gonna learn more about how this interaction may influence the rest of the protein. Look very carefully at this enzyme. At first glance, this may look exactly the same as this, but the enzyme is like hugging the active site and the substrates within that active site. Not only that, look elsewhere. This part of the enzyme up here appears or is different than this part. So when this sort of folding of the enzyme occurs, it influences all the functional groups, all the weak interactions that may occur within that enzyme. We call that induced fit. And perhaps this is one of the most commonly used analogy for enzymes, and that is the lock and key. So we have the enzyme and the substrate, forming this enzyme substrate complex. It's short-lived. Depending on how much time I have, you'll see that a lot of this goes right back to where it started. All right, we're gonna go into Menten kinetics, Michaelis Menten kinetics, rather, at the end of today and see exactly, mathematically, how does this proceed. Um, but the key here is that the enzyme itself doesn't change. It may change briefly in the complex, but this reaction here, once the substrates have broken down and it dissociates or comes apart from the enzyme, this enzyme should go right back to this form, provided it wasn't damaged. And typically that, that doesn't happen. The enzyme itself won't be damaged.
But you can see in here, the key here, the substrate, fits very specifically into the lock, which is the enzyme. If it's correct, it'll open up the lock. But if it's not correct, nothing will happen. So there needs to be a very specific interaction between the enzyme and the substrate in order for the reaction to proceed. So if we reduce the energy barriers, or the um, activation energy, rather, we can proceed or have that reaction move at a much faster rate. But I mentioned the delta G doesn't change necessarily for this reaction. So what you start out with and what you end up with, they all get there at about the same time. Only this will lower it and cause the reaction to move closer to products in a much faster pace. But slowly, this reaction will proceed. It'll get there. Enzymes speed it up. So you can see here in the red, in the presence of the enzyme, we're lowering that activation energy. We're lowering that initial amount of energy that's needed in order to trigger that reaction from to start or to begin. How are we doing here? I know this is an earlier checkpoint, but hold those green cards up really high. Hold them up really high. How many people have, if you have a green card up, how many people have learned uh, or learned about enzymes in a course before? Keep them up if you've learned about enzymes in a course before. Just curious. Okay. So enzymes help bring the substrate into where it needs to be to form a reaction in order to, for it to break down. So in this case, you can see oxaloacetate, rather, which is a four-carbon molecule binding first, and then your acetyl-CoA coming in in order for this to ultimately form citric acid. Again, this is part of a metabolic pathway that we'll be learning more about as we go through the semester. So in this case, you have two portions of the substrate that come together, but the enzyme ultimately help bring these together. All right, so that's the case. So not only do you have, or always do you have one substrate binding with the enzyme, in this case, here's an example of two different substrates binding to an enzyme reacting. Once an enzyme has grabbed onto a substrate, it may also induce or cause some physical strain to the enzyme itself. So you can see here, or to the substrate rather, I'm sorry, to the substrate, you can see here that the substrate bound, this enzyme may cause it to strain itself a little bit. All right? This is another possibility for when a substrate interacts with an enzyme. So we're just going over possibilities. Enzymes can also add chemical groups. So there can be some modification that occurs when the substrate is bound temporarily to the molecule. And all this is dependent on the enzyme. So these are just examples, these are just possibilities of, uh, of what these enzymes are capable of doing when they interact with their substrate. These don't sh uh, show up on your slides, so you can just ignore them for now. So the temporary addition of these chemical groups to substrates, here's a couple of different possibilities. Uh, you have acid-base catalysis based on the charges that are present with the enzymes at their R groups covalent catalysis, um, where the side chains temporarily form a covalent bond with the substrate. Again, we know covalent bonds is fairly strong bonds, but there's a possibility where there's a temporary bond formation. And then metal ion catalysis, where you need various ions that's dependent on the enzyme in order for them to be active. And some fun enzymes function with other groups. So not all of them work alone. Some of them need some kind of cofactor or some group that it works with. So these are all non-proteins, but they're working together with the enzyme. So there's prosthetic groups. Um, 
inorganic cofactors, coenzymes, that need to work together with an enzyme in order for it to function properly. So again, for the inorganic cofactors, you may have some various ions that are bound to the enzyme in order for it to function. If these ions are taken away from the enzyme, the enzyme will no longer have activity. So it may be an enzyme that requires zinc. You pull zinc away, it doesn't function. Let's say you bring back copper, it still doesn't work, it needs zinc. So there's very spec high specificity to the type of ion that the enzyme needs in order for it to function properly. And this is just, again, all those different molecules, uh, those groups, for example, and examples to show how they play a role in catalyzing these different chemical reactions. These are non-proteins, that's the key. These cofactors, the prosthetic groups, the metal ions, they're not proteins. So they work together with the enzyme in order to allow it to function properly. So we have our reaction uh, rate here shown. Um, on the y-axis, we can look or call that the rate. And on the x-axis, we're looking at an increasing amount of substrate. Uh, which one represents the presence of an enzyme? By your cards. All right. So we're looking at, yes, the pink represents the presence of the enzyme. Um, we're seeing this uh, hyperbolic curve here, this hyperbolic plot. I'll talk a little bit more about that later, so keep that in mind. Um, and if we were to label the y and the x-axis, yes, we're looking at reaction rate over the concentration of the substrate. Note how the concentration of the substrate at some point doesn't influence the reaction rate. So key into that portion of the plot, all right, that's a very important part of the enzyme kinetic, the enzyme kinetics that take place. So substrate affects the reaction rate. Here's a question. So here we can see now, as you just told me, the reaction with the enzyme, without the enzyme. If we take this portion right here and just start adding in a whole lot more enzyme, is it going to influence this plot? Is it going to influence this rate of reaction? So by adding more substrate, does anything change? Does it increase, does it decrease, or does it stay the same? It stays the same. Why does it stay the same? Why does it not go up? Go ahead. Saturation, what is saturation? What's going on with the enzyme? There's only so many binding spots in the enzyme. If I took five different mobile devices and I wanted to plug them in and charge them all up at the same time up front, I can't plug in anymore. They're all occupied. I have to wait for each of those devices to charge up before I can plug in more. So I have to wait for those enzymes to react, pull off of the substrate, and then allow it to grab onto a new substrate in order for it to react. So by adding more substrate here, it's not going to do anything to the kinetics. It's going to keep the reaction rate exactly the same. So the maximum rate of catalyzed reaction can be used to measure how efficient an enzyme is. So let's say we were studying a whole bunch of different enzymes. We'd want to study them where they have their greatest efficiency. Now, not all reactions and not all enzymes are always in that saturation point. Many of them that are used in living organisms function earlier on, which is what we call the KM. And I'll get to that in a minute. And that's half of that maximum velocity of the reaction. 
So the turnover number is the maximum number of substrate molecules that can convert the product per unit time. Let's go back to lysozyme. All right. Let's go back to lysozyme. Lysozyme is very slow relative to other enzymes. All right. Perhaps the turnover for lysozyme is somewhere around one molecule every two seconds. Versus other enzymes, like catalase, for example, we're talking over 40 million molecules every second. So depending on the enzyme, it may have a very, very high turnover or slow. So how do we look at this mathematically speaking? This is not in your textbook anywhere. <laughs> your textbook sort of hints at this, but you won't find it in your textbook. But what I put on these slides uh, should be plenty for you to understand the Michaelis-Menten kinetics and for you to answer the questions. There's a few in the problem sets. So the reaction rate ultimately depends on the concentration of the enzyme in the substrate. We've already established that. The KM is the Michaelis-Menten constant, and it implies that half of the enzyme active site is occupied by the substrate. So it's earlier on in that plot, we are at one half of the maximal rate of enzyme activity. And you're gonna see this in a minute. And we know that there's a number of different environmental factors that influence this. pH, temperature, the ionic strength, the bonds and the interactions, and then the substrate itself. So there's a lot that play a role in the Michaelis-Menten kinetics of an enzyme. This I pulled from the net. If you guys wanna check it out, uh, you can look at it, but it's right in your slide, so you, need, you have what you need. So in this case, we're looking not at the rate on the y-axis, we're looking at concentration over time. And the concentration here has to do with a number of different things. So there's a whole bunch of plots going on here. So over time, as we add an enzyme, oh, a whole bunch of my, my things are blended in here. Um, as we add an enzyme to a reaction, we can see that it begins to drop off initially. As the substrate, all right, is used up and reacted with, so as soon as the enzyme reacts with substrate, the substrate comes down, the enzyme comes down, the enzyme-substrate complex begins to come up. And then eventually, the product forms. How come the enzyme-substrate complex doesn't continue to go up? Saturation, you got it. But the products keep forming. So every so often, products come out of this. I mentioned that this reaction goes back in reverse, but there are times when it completes, it goes forward. Everything's moving, everything's dynamic, nothing is set solid. This is what we call steady state, okay, so this is the region where we're keeping the enzyme substrate constant somewhere in this initial portion where it's saturated, all right? But by adding any more substrate here, it's not gonna make a difference. What if you add more enzyme? Will that change things? How many say, yeah, it would change things by pink card, by adding substrate? How many say, no, by green card, green or yellow? For the enzyme, what happens if you add more enzyme? Will it speed up the kinetics of the reaction? It absolutely will speed up the kinetics of the reaction. So if you have a set amount of enzyme present and you just add in more substrate, it's not going to influence. But if you're adding more enzyme, now you're going to begin to influence the kinetics of the reaction. 
So here's how you determine these specific values. And this is, uh, I think there's a question on the problem sets that have you estimate the Vmax and the Km uh, based on the data that's provided after you go ahead and plot it out. So the Vmax is the maximum rate of the enzyme catalysis when the substrate is saturated. So we know that the substrate here is saturated because the enzyme kinetics, or the rate that is, is no longer increasing. So this is the Vmax. And then the Km is one half of the Vmax. So if we had some units here for the rates of reaction, we would take one half of that, look over at the plot, or draw a straight line over to the plot, down to the substrate, and that would tell us what the Km is for that particular enzyme. Most enzymes behave somewhere in this region. Most enzymes in living systems aren't always saturated. They're somewhere right around that Km. There's a range around there that most of them lie. So enzymes, to what degree did we learn this? Um, if we learn this in as much detail as I presented it, green. If you learn, okay, so not too many of you learned it in this much detail. Spend time on the problem sets for this, okay? Um, and for this, again, I know that your discussion section TFs are going to go over this briefly with you, the Michaelis-Menten kinetics. But I think based on what I went over now, you should be fine for those problem sets. Um, but of course, if you have more questions about this, check with your discussion section TFs. And uh, we don't uh, all completely have this, so let's skip on this one, this round of applause, but that's okay. All right, we'll have plenty of time for a round of applause. Enzyme regulation. This is really where it all counts. All right, everything we learned about enzymes and substrates, this is what matters most. Now, even in a biochemistry course, you're not going to learn about all these metabolic pathways in this much detail and how they all interact. But you're going to pick each metabolic pathway apart one by one and see how it functions and see how it helps us metabolize and break down various macromolecules in our body. So all of this ultimately is determined by our genes. So if I eat a lot more of one substance, it's not the substance itself that modulates this molecular pathway. It's ultimately the genes that allow us to make the enzymes to interact with what I just ingested so I can break it down properly and metabolize it. So this is a fairly um, uh, evolving area where these computer algorithms are used to study all these interactions. So you could say, for example, what happens if I eliminate one of these enzymes? What happens if I eliminate or turn down this one particular aspect of the pathway? What does this do for the rest of the pathway? Um, there's a lot of interesting work done on uh, metabolic diseases, metabolic illnesses, where uh, the individual may not be able to make a sufficient supply of ATP. Okay, you can eat all the food you want. You can take in all the glucose you want. But if you cannot metabolize it properly and make enough ATP to drive cellular machinery, you're going to feel fatigued all the time. So there's a lot of interesting research in this particular area. And you would definitely perhaps propose a model to understand how that may work. So enzymes are regulated by inhibitors. There's natural inhibitors. There's artificial ones. The natural ones are all the ones in the pathway scheme that I showed you. The artificial ones are the ones like, for example, the HIV reverse transcriptase inhibitor that can be developed or that has been developed and utilized to treat HIV based on the enzyme that it targets. So there's different types of, inhib of inhibition. In this case, this is not something that we would see normally in our body. DIPF, which you can look up the full name of it in your book, this is nerve gas. What this does is it irreversibly shuts down your nerves, the cells, that is. 
at the enzymatic level, what happens is here's the enzyme that we need in order for our nerve cells to function properly. If this particular molecule is bound to the active site, it does not allow this enzyme to interact properly with its normal substrate. And you can die from this. So this is something that, again, we don't see in cells. I shouldn't even say not common. It's really never found in cells, all right, unless it was something that was deliberately introduced um, into the cell. So this is an irreversible form of inhibition. Something that's reversible, which we see more often in cells, relative to the irreversible, there's three types. And the main difference, the take home between these three types is where the inhibitor binds. So this is where the substrate normally wants to bind, let's say, for this enzyme. What do we call this site that it's bound in? The active site. Does anyone know what this site's called? If we read ahead? The allosteric site. So the allosteric site, away from the active site. Stay tuned, I'll talk more about that in a minute. But for the competitive inhibitor, it binds directly to this active site. Can the substrate bind in this situation? It has nowhere to go. So it's unable to bind here. However, however, is that competitive inhibitor permanently bound? Think back to the psychedelic video. It's not permanently bound. It may come in, it may come out. So can you override this? Just add in more substrate. You can eventually override that. That's why ultimately if this drug reverse transcriptase inhibitor is introduced into humans, we need to make sure that we're adding enough of it so that it outcompetes the normal enzyme for its substrate. The uncompetitive inhibitor binds near the active site, but you can see here it prevents the substrate from leaving. So this sort of blocks it and prevents it from coming out. So this substrate will stay in there. It won't release and form products. And then the non-competitive inhibitor. Here's where you're binding to the site other than the active site. Call this an allosteric site. And look what it's done to the active site. This substrate is not properly bound. It's not going to efficiently react and form new products. So these different types of inhibition. And uh, which one of these three, which one of these three can you overcome by simply adding more substrate? Which one can you overcome by simply adding more substrate? Okay, cool. And I think I already just kind of gave that away. Sorry. All right. Allosteric regulation. Allosteric regulation compared to everything that I talked about in enzymes and, and how they're regulated is probably the one that's a little more challenging. So I would definitely encourage you guys when you're studying, when you're reviewing, spend a little more time on this, okay, on allosteric regulation. Don't confuse allosteric regulation with allosteric inhibition, all right? So in this case, and there's a problem question about this, in this case, when you have an allosteric site, not only can you have an inhibitor bind, but you may have an activator bind to this allosteric fight site. And this becomes more common and more, I wanted to say popular, but you see this happen more often, rather, in uh, these metabolic pathways where you have these various feedback mechanisms, which, again, will be covered uh, in, the, in the metabolic pathway section of the course. So you can see here an inactive form of an enzyme, all right, will stay inactive when an allosteric inhibitor is bound. So here, you have the chance of it going into an active form, let's say if it folds properly, and forming this active site in order for the substrate to bind, and then it'll react with the substrate and form products. There are these allosteric activators, which really just enhance the interaction that occurs at the active site, which allow for product to form. 
All right? Now, there's multiple ways of doing this. You may have, as you add an activator, you may have increased activity for the enzyme. So it may start out slow, and then it gets ramped up. And there's a different curve. There are different kinetics that we see when this occurs. We see a sigmoidal shape. And let me just briefly go over this now. So for now, an allosteric enzyme, which we already learned about, the substrate binds to the active site, and we typically see these kinetics. All right, we typically see these kinetics. And then obviously, um, if we were to add an inhibitor to this, this would take much longer. But for a multi-subunit allosteric enzyme, the more substrate that gets bound, the faster the reaction proceeds. So it takes a little while for it to pick up, but once it picks up, it picks up really fast. But it takes a while for that enzyme to get going. So there's a practice problem on this. I'm trying to highlight certain things to the practice problems so you get a little bit of direction when you're, when you're answering some of these problems. Um, but keep this in mind when you're looking at these two, uh, depending on the type of enzyme you're looking at and how it catalyzes the reaction or any given reaction. So just like proteins, well, are enzymes proteins? Yes. And they're affected by many different environmental conditions, uh, pH, temperature, to name a few, that may influence the activity of an enzyme. So an enzyme is a protein. So pretty much whatever may influence a protein will influence an enzyme. Here's something interesting, and it's an aside, and I encourage you to look it up if you're curious to learn more. Fevers, all right, raising the temperature in our body, will that influence our enzymes? Based on everything I'm saying right now, it has a very, very strong possibility. Now, we may have different forms of enzymes that can counterbalance those ranges or those fluctuations in temperature, all right? But microbes associated with our body can't really survive well under those certain conditions. Not all, but some. So there have been some studies done where infections in the human body are actually reduced, let's say bacterial ones, when a person spikes a fever. Now, there's a lot of things going on when a fever spikes right, in terms of your immune system. But there's a separate mechanism at play where when your body temperature raises, that has an effect on the bacteria that prevents its enzymatic machinery from going through its own metabolic pathways. So enzymes can be very finicky. And that's why I said for industrial practices, we're looking to engineer enzymes can work across many, many temperature ranges. So if you were the person in the lab studying this stuff, trying to figure out what enzymes function at what pHs or what temperatures, you may be looking at a profile similar to this. So each enzyme has a certain optimal pH. All right, and you can see this within the peaks of the various enzymes that are up on the screen. So the reaction rate at the various pHs, these enzymes will work over somewhat of a narrow range. Depends on the enzyme, in the wider range, some of these digestive enzymes used um, that help break down proteins. Um, but then you have some that, again, work at an even greater range. So depending on the enzyme, you may have a very, very narrow range. It may be very finicky, or it may work well over multiple pHs. Same goes for temperature. Same goes for temperature. But you don't see that um, somewhat symmetrical plot. In this case, when you raise the temperature up, you see activity increase. But then at some point, 
it comes down rather abruptly. Why is that? What's happening? Is the enzyme activity decreasing? Why? It's denaturing it, absolutely. So the enzyme's falling apart. So as soon as it hits the temperature that's just right, it will cause it to denature, and you won't see that slow increase in activity. You're going to see it just drop off really fast. So these higher temperatures, again, via weak non-covalent bonds, break the enzyme up, or denature it, rather. If we were to, in the same reaction tube, bring the temperature back down, what would we predict will happen? to the enzyme activity. Will it just keep going down? Perhaps it would come back up. Why would that be? The hope the protein may reform, absolutely. It may go back into its conformational change into that tertiary or, depending on what type of protein it is, quaternary structure for it to be active against its substrate. That'd be a cool experiment. So this is close to the end. How are we doing? I have a pretty cool thing to leave on today. Um, just a brief summary of what we covered. So we talked about macromolecules, or really we just introduced one type of macromolecule, the protein, went through various structures that it is capable of forming. Talked a lot about environmental factors, but then more importantly spent a lot of time on enzymes. Spent a lot of time on enzymes, especially the Michaelis-Menten kinetics, especially the problems. Now, what does this all really mean? So here are some studies that have been done. And uh, we're more familiar with this today, I think, than ever before. And uh, it all has to do with proteins. The first one has to do with what are called prions. Has anyone ever heard of a prion? Let's use the yellow cards if you've heard of a prion. Prions, prions. What are prions? If you, hold, if you held up your yellow card, what are prions? Go ahead. Yes. So proteins, once they're around, they'll sequester other proteins to come onto their side. And what prions are, they're really just another form of a protein, but it's a form that typically does harm in a human, let's say, for example. So up on the uh, screen, on the upper right, there's an image showing cells, tissue, but the clear spots are not good. That's areas within the tissue that are broken down. Prions tend to create these holes in various environments. It's very well understood, associated with cattle and mad cow disease. In humans, the equivalence of this is what we call Crusoe-Jacob disease, where these proteinaceous infectious particles cause damage to the brain and holes to the brain to the point of mad cow disease, cattle will just fall over, for example, begin to exhibit this erratic behavior. So understanding how proteins fold will help better develop ways of treating this. How do we treat a protein? It's an infectious protein. How do you treat that? So these are really areas that are newer relative to uh, some of the other microbes that we know about that cause infections in our body. This is really cool. This is something that um, may happen. It's less than 10% of women worldwide. I think it's really low. Somewhere between 2 and 8% of women may get uh, or experience these symptoms of what we call preeclampsia. And this ultimately has to do with uh, the blood vessels narrowing 
and uh, you can raise or have high blood pressure. Uh, women in, could die from this, so this is something that's very, very important. Now, what they found associated with this is that the proteins that fold, they fold improperly in women who have this, and it spills out in their urine. The aggregated proteins spill out in the urine. Recently, a diagnostic test has been developed to look in the urine of women who are pregnant for this, so that before it develops into the full clamp seal, let's say, for example, they don't you know, continue on in this process. So there's a diagnostic test out there. It's really simple. It's a dye that basically binds to these clumped proteins in your urine that indicate whether or not this person may have these symptoms before they even see it, before their blood pressure even goes up. So it's pretty cool to see that there's diagnostic tests that have been developed for these diseases or for these illnesses that all are based on how the proteins fold in the body or how they don't fold properly in the body. So quite a bit of stuff out there on this. So um, next time, uh, I'm going to move into plasma membranes, uh, specifically the macromolecules we'll cover are the carbohydrates and the lipids. And I hope to also go over transport. So stay tuned for all those topics next. Oh, uh, what's your name? Sorry. Steven. Steven.